How goes it? How goes it, Lo? Um, it goes. It goes. As long as it's going, you know, can't complain, right? Um, actually, there's been some, um, a few little fun tidbits that we're going to share. Yes, yes. we got to tell the people some fun updates. Um, so, first and foremost, thank you, Dex. We know you're listening somewhere. Yes, thank you for being our number one supporter. We truly appreciate it. Uh, best friend, Dex. <laughs> yep. Um, so, but I want to give a real super shout out. Um, so I had a super fan write in and, um, it's Jay Krieger from Rhode Island. What up, Jay? What's up, Jay? Um, he reached out about the Lorena Bobbitt case and had some questions and I was very pleased to chat with him about it and we chatted for a little bit and, uh. I don't know, just made me uh, feel good talking to somebody out there and knowing that they listen. Yeah, that was awesome. I, I creeped on your guys' messages um, after Lo told me about them. Um, so thanks for reaching out. That was awesome. So stay creepy, Jay Krieger. Yes. From Rhode Island. Yep. Um, secondly, Texas is creeping in. So top 10 places that um our listeners are from and they popped up from north richland hills in texas you guys made the new top 10 list number 10 yee diggity yee diggity dog (laughs) what up texas (laughs) i won't let her go there i promise (laughs) sorry guys i can't help it um but we still have macomb county at number one (laughs) that's right (laughs) And sadly, my old hometown of Waterford is at number five. Wow. They they felt betrayed that you moved, so they stopped listening. And Milan is still at number three. We got Belgium at number four. I'm not sure who number two is because it says N.A., but it's somewhere in the United States. Mysterious. And then we got <laughs> Dublin at number six. Richardson. I want to say that was Virginia when I looked it up. Okay. Um, that was number seven, Singapore, and then Lublock, which I believe is also Texas. Um, I think so, I'm pretty sure. And then North Richland Hills, so thanks guys, top ten, bring it home. Thanks for listening. If you want your city in the top ten list, then... You better fucking listen. Yeah, you better <laughs> spread, the, spread the freaking word, okay? <laughs> um, also, before we get into our story, um, I had the pleasure of also Instagramming with a, another Instagrammer. Um, and this is uh, food crime. Food and crime. Love it. Yes. Lo is our PR person, so she speaks with all the all the peeps. <laughs> You're probably never talking to me. <laughs> so they have a book out, and it is called Confessions of a Prison Cook. Love it. Which, for real, like, I'm so intrigued by this. Um, and it is by Erica Summerfield and Philip Longo, and they are from L.A., California. Ooh. Hey. Um, you can get the book. It's for sale on Amazon right now. So I'm going to read you a couple things out of it. And then I want you to log off and go to Amazon and order your copy. Because I'm probably going to order one. 
Um, real here soon. Real here, real here soon. <laughs> Got it. Taking it back to Texas. <laughs> uh, soon, I'm probably gonna order my copy because I'm very intrigued by some same of this girl. Stuff. This is cool. So, um, part of this is the July Fourth food crimes. And it says, President Zachary Taylor enjoyed a meal July 4th in 1850 um, as a celebration, and he was ingesting copious amounts of ice, milk, and cherries. He died five days later from gastroenteritis. I probably messed that word up, but... <laughs> they know what you mean. Why well, all give me big words? <laughs> he had some tummy issues, basically, is what she's trying to say. Uh Football star turned a murder, Aaron Hernandez. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Well, I guess they're all food and crimes. So would they all be criminals? I don't know. You know how you know? You buy the book. Yeah, that's how you find out. <laughs> so football star turned murderer, Aaron Hernandez, scored free cream of wheat and meatloaf in jail on Independence Day. Um, yum. That was your choice? Yeah, okay. Okay. I would have been begging for, like, Twizzlers. Yeah. And then an 18-year-old Domino's delivery girl set out on July 4th, 1982, with a stack of pizzas, never to be seen again. Witnesses discovered her car near a fireworks show with crushed Domino pizza boxes nearby. (laughs) So you'll get more stuff like that, um, and then also you'll get chapter 50, The Grapes of Wrath. Fine wine collecting is a passion that drowns out reason or logic. Collectors love the cultured beverage and are heavily influenced by the beauty and appearance of the bottle. Yet experts estimate that 20% are counterfeit. One historic wine forgery involves the 18th century Thomas Jefferson bottles. They were first sold via Christie's London in 1985. The decanters were purchased by Christopher Forbes for $156,000 as a gift for his father, Malcolm Forbes. They were thought to have come from a collection of wines with the initials THJ, suggesting the investments were property of President Thomas Jefferson. Um, Other serious collectors sought out the famous flasks. Energy tycoon William Koch purchased five bottles for nearly $500,000. The rarities were put up for auction by 25-year-old Rudy Kernwian, who stained his career with a decade-long jail sentence for selling approximately $150 million worth of fake wines. Damn. (laughs) That was... That was me, not the chapter. <laughs> the dam was me, not the chapter. Okay, back to it. <laughs> Winemaker Opius One implemented a security system using a chip between cork and seal, which changes colors when scanned for authenticity. A bottle of Gorgana white wine harvested by convicts at Gorgana Island Prison off the coast of Tuscany sells for about $100 in the United States. The most famous inmate is Benedetto Sorello, a murderer of fashion mogul Maurizio Gucci. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. If you know, you know. (laughs) Um, Grapes have a seedy past. Elizabeth Stride, Jack the Ripper's third victim, was found dead in 1888 with the fleshy berries in hand. It is believed 
that the notorious killer used the then luxury fruit to lure the unlucky prostitute. So yes, that was chapter 50, The Grapes of Wrath. Um, So if you guys want more, which you should, you should definitely go check it out. Um, Check out their stuff. Get it on Amazon. And let us know what you think and shoot them a message too. Show your support. Again, Confessions of a Prison Cook. Their Instagram is at Food and Crime. And then it's by Erica Summerfield and Philip Longo. A fusion of food and crime. Ooh, I love that tagline. I love food and I love crime, so I'm in. I'm sold. Don't go to prison and you'll get both. Well, I'm partly sold. (laughs) I'm sold to read about other people's experiences with it. Sold to who? (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) Um... So, the wine choice for this week is Sutter Holmes Fruit Infusions. Ding, ding, ding. What am I missing? Oh, the grapes. <laughs> Wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> A fusion of food and crime. Oh, yes. <laughs> and the wine that we are drinking is infused. You said, I thought fruit, and we were talking about grapes. Okay. <laughs> I just want to give you guys a heads up. Crystal is very sleep deprived um, today. Yeah, um, the parts of this episode that you will not be hearing are probably about 30 minutes of me just laughing straight, like hysterically just laughing. Um, so you're welcome for taking that out. So nobody else below had to hear it. And I apologize to you, Lo. The fleshy berries got to her. Th- that is honestly what set me off. <laughs> um, but I will no longer be laughing. Oh, hopefully for the rest of this episode because, um, yeah, it gets, shit gets real, real dark. Just continuing on with, um, with the, with the twisted story of, Barbie and Ken, Mr. Paul and Carla. Yes, it is for sure not one that uh, is anything to laugh about. No, definitely not. So last week um, was part one of the Ken and Barbie killers, and we talked about Paul Bernardo. Lo gave us the rundown of like his past, um, how he kind of like got into the whole crime thing with his like raping girls, um, following them home, how he became the Scarborough rapist and all that. Um, and then she kind of left us to talk about Carla today. Um, so if you did miss part one, go back and listen to that one. Um, and then come back, then come back over here afterwards. So... I'm going to start off by telling you guys a little bit about Carla Leanne Homoka. And before we do start, I do want to like give a disclaimer, like a trigger warning if you're like um you know, super uncomfortable with like sexual abuse, rape, things like that. Um I would suggest not listening if it you know, really triggers you or whatever, but that's just kind of our disclaimer before we get started cuz it gets a little dark. A lot of dark, <laughs> I should say. So Carla Leanne Homoka was born on May 4th in 1970 
in St. Catharines, Ontario, um, which was pretty much about an hour and a half away from Toronto um, and near Niagara Falls. Um, her father, Karel Homoka, he was born in Czechoslovakia and he actually moved to Canada with his parents when he was just seven. He worked as a traveling salesman and he would sell like these velvet paintings and light fixtures, kind of in like those outdoor type markets or like the kiosk type things that you would see in the mall. He had a really bad drinking problem and he was very verbally abusive to not only her mother but to the the children as well, Carla and her siblings. So Carla's mother, Dorothy, she was a hotel administrator until she began to have having children and then she decided to be a stay-at-home mom, um, you know, full-time mom and wife. And after Carla was born, her younger sister, Lori, was born 14 months later. And then two years after that came her youngest sister, Tammy. Not to be confused with me. Yes, Lori. I thought you were talking about Tammy. I, you guys, I'm so tired. I thought you were talking about Tammy, and I was like, wait. Yeah, different Lori. <laughs> we would have extra tea if you were the if you were the Lori. <laughs> um, so first they lived in a trailer park in St. Catharines until Carla was a little bit older. Um, and then they eventually upgraded to this really nice house in a subdivision. It had like an in-ground in pool, and it was just um, kind of a big upgrade for the family. Carla's parents, they had their own issues, and Carla also suffered from a childhood illness. She was hospitalized actually quite a few times during her youth um, due to her extreme asthma. It didn't seem to affect her physical or mental development at that point, at least, like, growing up, it didn't seem to have that much of an effect, but she did have to go to the hospital quite a few times for her asthma. She even seemed to be, like, kind of a prodigy, her mom would say. Um, Carla walked and talked and read. She did all that a lot sooner than the average child did. And when she was in third grade, she was given an IQ test that she actually scored a 131 on, which put her in the 90th percentile. Um, <clears throat> so she was really, really intelligent. Her teachers loved her because she was very eager in school. You know, she actually enjoyed learning and being there, and she wanted to, like, learn everything. She was the first person at her desk when the bell rang in the morning and kind of, like, the first person back inside of the building after recess. So she was just an eager, intelligent student. She also, though kind of had an obsessive need to like be perfect pretty much um even in the second and third grade Carla would draw pictures and she would just like freak out and stress over the smallest details you know basically like oh if the lines weren't perfectly straight she would like get really stressed about it or if she like shaded the wrong colors you know like she would just get very upset if things were not done perfectly and she was also a very girly girl um she gave a lot of attention to her appearance um and she had a ton of barbie dolls that she loved to like do the same with you know she loved dressing them up doing their hair all of that stuff so she was really into into the glitz and glam of everything um 
her friends did describe her as bossy and controlling. Basically, it had to be her way or the highway. Um, if they came over to play Barbies at her house, she would like have to control the entire storyline of their game. You know, she would say, "Oh, what the scenario was, what the what the Barbies would be wearing, what they would say," um, and. If her friends, like, you know, wanted to not do that and do something else, um, or if they tried to add, you know, their own spin onto the story, she would basically throw a temp temper tantrum, throw a fit, like, put the Barbies away and, like, pout for the rest of the day. Like, it was like, if she didn't, if things didn't go perfectly according her way, it was like, okay, well, nobody else can have fun because now I'm mad. Which is just the worst, okay? That is just the worst. I hate when people are like that. I know she was a child, but still. <laughs> One time she thought it would be a good idea. I don't know I don't know why she thought this would be a good idea, but she tried to make, <clears throat> she didn't try, she did. She made a parachute for her friend's hamster and they tossed it out the window. It clearly failed and the hamster died. Um, which, you know, the, the, that could kind of be brushed off as somewhat normal if, like, you know, irresponsible kids just trying to, like, think that they would actually make a parachute for their hamster. Um, but no, 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 not normal, because then a couple weeks later, she decided to go back to her friend's house, dig up the hamster, um, and, like, basically examine it because she wanted to see what the dead body would look like. Red flag. Hashtag red flag. Ew. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> when she was 12, she became very interested in true crime and mystery. Um, she read every Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys book that she could basically convince, you know, her parents to get her. Um, she told everybody she wanted to be a detective when she grew up. And she also began purposely going out of her way to scare her friends. Like, she found, like, this new hobby of, like, bringing people over to use the Ouija board and summon spirits, um, you know, in general, she just kind of seemed like she enjoyed scaring people or making people upset, making people sad. Um, how sweet. <laughs> Those who knew her said that she could become, like, basically absolutely savage and ruthless with her words. Like, she would basically figure out what would make them you know, crack or what would make them upset or angry. And she would use that to her advantage to make them upset or make them angry, like, because she, like, enjoyed bringing out those, like, negative emotions in people. In high school, she once wrote in someone's yearbook, Bones rule, death rules, death kicks, I love death, kill the effing world. <laughs> Don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound super positive, in my opinion. <laughs> she also told another friend that she wanted to put, she wanted to like draw dots all over someone's body and then play connect the dots with a knife afterwards. And she wanted to pour vinegar on this person. To me, that's like weirdly specific, um, but okay. Don't know. <laughs> Where she got that idea. Yeah, I don't know about the vinegar. I mean... Like, would it be to, like, make it sting or something? Like... Which, I don't know that it would because vinegar, like... I mean, maybe it would sting, but, like, I could see, like, if she would have said bleach. Right. 
or you know something like that but people drink vinegar like a shot of it a day people mm-hmm. clean with it people it's a very natural substance right so that's just kind of a, a weird pick in my humble opinion but yeah i don't know carry on i don't know where the vinegar comes in but that would be her uh choice i guess <laughs> um people were like legit scared of her like she liked to dominate people you know she was a dominant type a personality if you crossed her you uh you could pretty much figure out in two seconds how horrible she could be you know how vindictive she could be when she was 13 she started wearing all black uh she um got her long blonde hair she cut it short she dyed it multiple colors her nail polish was black, her makeup was dark and heavy. Um, basically, she had the goth vibes going on. Um, which, no, no hate if that's your style, but, you know, she kind of had the personality to go along with that, if that makes sense. People who knew her said that she gave off a vibe that, like, she really didn't care what other people were wearing or doing. Like, she didn't care what they thought about her basically for what she was wearing, her attitude, anything like that. Um, She just didn't give no Fs. So she definitely, um, what is that saying, marched to the beat of her own drum and didn't care what anybody else thought. She would become moody and distant. She rarely smiled. When she did speak, it was super harsh and abrasive. She was described as like loud and stubborn and willful kind of with the inability to like never admit when she was wrong so yeah she was basically the person who just couldn't say i'm sorry because she really genuinely never believed that she was wrong um and those who saw her every day or at least on a regular basis said that she really suffered from mood swings and they just never knew which kind of version of her that they were going to get that day which kind of makes me wonder if she had you know, like bipolar or some type of mood disorder going on. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. She definitely doesn't sound like, you know, the normal teen hormones. There's actually a little bit more to it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Saying you want to connect the dots with a knife probably would sell it for me. (laughs) So like I mentioned before, she was super into reading. And she did do the Nancy Drew stuff, but it eventually grew to horror novels that she was into and, like, fantasy stories and books about the occult. Um, When she was a senior in high school, her interest in the occult seemed to expand, and she constantly just was thinking about death or hurting herself. Her friends began to notice strange circular marks on her arms, like... They were wounds that she carved into her own skin, and then she filled them with black nail polish. Which, that would hurt more than the vinegar, in my opinion. It was at this time she also began experimenting with drugs and alcohol and sex, um, while she was dating a boy named Doug, who ended up being her first uh, sexual experience. He said that Carla was the girl that all the other boys in school saw as being different, But personally, Doug liked it because it just kept him interested, I guess, even though she was, like, not into being like all the other girls. So it kept him on his toes. 
As far as, like, fashion went, she was considered to be one of the prettiest and most popular girls in school. Um, and she definitely formed a clique of mean girls um, that she ruled over. She was, like, the supreme leader, basically the Regina George of the group. Um, they called themselves the EDC, which stood for the Exclusive Diamond Club, which is just cheesy to me, but whatever. <laughs> The group was made up of Carla and her three best friends, Kathy Wilson, Debbie Purdy, and Lisa Stanton. And they all weirdly looked like each other. Like, they were pretty much the same height, the same weight. They all had, like, these perm blonde hairdos, and they all wore punk clothing. Um, and they all shared the same goal to find a rich, successful, handsome older man to marry one day who would provide them with that diamond ring, a.k.a. the exclusive diamond club. I mean, I get it, you know. That's a great, that's a goal to have. <laughs> um, a former member of the group recalled members saying that you didn't want to get in a fight with Carla because she was the leader and she would always win. Carla's father, Carell, he had to gain himself, uh, he, he got an unfortunate nickname. <laughs> like, between the women who worked with his wife. Um, they called him the pervert when one of Dorothy's friends, Dorothy, again, is Carla's mom, um, so one of her friends and coworkers was going through a divorce, and he just randomly showed up at her house and told her that he loved her and that he was going to leave his wife to be with her. I mean... I'm sorry, going through a divorce card would have been sufficient. <laughs> right, yeah, that would have probably, you know, that probably would have been enough. <laughs> um, he seemed to have a very high sex drive to the point where Dorothy admitted to her friends that it was actually a relief when he went away on business overnight. Um, however, it seemed like her marriage to him was important enough to save at any cost to her because after Corel went to her friend's house and like confessed his love for her you know the friend sent him home and was like get out of here like I'm not interested um and then he went home and told Dorothy everything which well, at least he's honest right yeah this is a plus to that so her friend got another visitor at the door and this time it was Dorothy herself um and Dorothy basically told her she said listen you know I don't think my husband's in love with you don't worry, I'm not crazy. It's probably just like an infatuation type thing. But if you would just like do us the favor of, you know, sleeping with both of us, like it could potentially save my marriage. Oh my god. You talk about a freaking bombshell. Could you imagine? I'd be like, um, please leave or I'm gonna call the authorities. Like both of you leave me alone at this point. Her poor friend was probably just like, oh my, like so overwhelmed at this point. So when it's reported that Carla had, like, this completely normal upbringing, because for a while that was kind of the, the story, was that everything was normal and good in her house, um, it's definitely not true because her dad was just very abusive to all of them. I don't know so much about physically. Um, there's not a lot out on that, but he definitely was very, very verbally abusive, especially when he would drink. Carla loved animals, um, which, in my opinion, the hamster situation has me thinking differently, but, you know, whatever. Um, when she was in school, 
she saw some boys poking at a bug on the playground and she freaked out. She ran over to stop them and she also spent hours like training the family cat to do tricks. So basically she just like had this love for animals. So she began working part-time at a pet store when she was about 16. Carla's love of animals then um, kind of set her on this whole big-ass collision course to meet the Scarborough rapist and become his wife when she was just 17 years old. So the reason they were connected is because she went to a pet store convention in Scarborough with a couple of her co-workers. Um, the manager of the store, her name was Christy, and Carla's friend, Debbie Purdy, um, who also worked at the store. The convention was held at the Howard Johnson Hotel, and the first night that they were there, Carla and Debbie went out drinking, and when they got back to the hotel, it was midnight, they were hungry, so they went up to the room, changed into their pajamas, and then went down to, like, I guess the hotel restaurant, um, which was open 24-7 to, to get some grilled cheese. So Carla was sitting there, you know, just happily eating her sandwich, and she was a little tipsy um, in her pajamas. And this is when two men approached her table, and one of the men was Mr. Paul Bernardo. He had noticed Carla from across the room, and he was immediately attracted to her, probably because she was a teenager. <laughs> just saying, but um, I guess the feeling was mutual because as soon as she saw him, she was definitely smitten and super into him. You probably feel the twistedness of each other from across the room. Yeah, it was probably like the, the, that dark attraction drawing them to each other. Kind of going back to like how Carla always loved her Barbie dolls and like she loved all things like that. She wanted to be a Disney princess. She told her friends that one day she would get a husband who was just as handsome and just as perfect as her Ken dolls. Um, and Paul, like Lo kind of talked about last week, he was very into taking care of himself and like looking a specific way. Um, at this time, he was adding blonde highlights um, so that his already sandy hair kind of looked more blonde. Um, and you know, that he had been working at the out at the gym so he was definitely giving Kendall vibes, um, and Carla was all about it. So yeah, they met that night, definitely clicked. Um, his friends were a little bit shocked that he wanted to date her because he had no interest in dating anybody for like a long period of time. Um, but yeah, so fast forward a bit, and Paul and Carla are in love um, more like toxic love. They basically were inseparable. They couldn't be without each other. Um, and remember, at this time, he's already been attacking and raping women in the Scarborough area. Um, he's attacked two women and attempted to attack two more at this point when he's dating Carla. Um, and you might think that he would, you know, want to hide something like this from his new girlfriend. Um, but something, some vibe Carla was giving off, obviously must have told Paul that he was in a safe space. Um, because they hadn't been together for that long before Paul was confessing to Carla all of his twisted sexual fantasies, um, and she didn't, like, you know, shy away from this. She wasn't like, like, ew, get away from me. She was, like, encouraging him about it. Um, so I think that's when he was like, oh, I met my match, basically. 
Um, the weekend after they met, Paul drove up to see Carla. She already told her friends and family about him. Um, you know, she said he was this older, handsome man and super charming. She said that she found her prince charming at last. And Carla's parents actually immediately liked Paul, which kind of just shows you how deceiving appearances can be and like how good of a manipulator he was um, because of his like charm. He also, he also told them about his blossoming rap career. And yes, you heard that correctly. Um, Paul Bernardo wanted to be a famous rap artist, which I would die to hear some of his raps. Like, I would love to hear that. <laughs> well, sorry, Marshall Mathers filled that slot. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Um, can't really beat that. He did record some songs in his home studio, and his nap his nap name his rap name was Young Hype, <laughs> which I just I need to hear this. Oh um, he told people, including Carla and her family, that he was so good and established that real record producers were just banging down his doors to like sign him. Which is so false and so far from the truth, but people believed him because of, like, the way that he... I Just the way he told stories was so believable, I guess. Well, sorry, we ended up settling for Vanilla Ice. Yep. <laughs> oh my mother. gosh. Could you imagine if he became, like, a rap star and then all this shit came out about him? That would be news-breaking. So Carla's parents thought that he seemed very loving and protective of her, he called her his little princess, which I think is kind of gross. But um, <laughs> Carla's sister, um, both of them actually really liked Paul also, especially twelve-year-old Tammy, who he paid of a lot of, who he paid a lot of attention to, and she thought that he was really cute. You know, she was twelve years old. He was like this cool older guy that's hanging around the house and whatever. For every weekend, Paul went and visited Carla, and he always had like a winning smile, some little treat or gift for her, and eventually Carla was able to get permission from her parents to let Paul spend the night so they could be together more often. Um, I just kind of like to point out and remind y'all that Carla was 17, still in high school, and Paul was 24. He had ar already graduated from college. Um, but from what I can tell, Carla's parents were not very strict when it came to things like overnights with boyfriends or underage drinking or really anything at all. Um, like, for example, right before Carla met Paul, she asked for permission to visit the United States to see a boy that she was talking to, and her parents said no. Um, she went anyways. She did not listen to them, and she called them once she was there. She's like, hey, I'm here in the United States. Um, but I'll be home in two weeks. And there was literally no punishment or anything. She didn't, they just were kind of like, oh, well, that happened, okay, moving along. Um, so, you know, kind of just shows what, uh, what she felt like she could get away with, with them. Um, they did make him sleep on the couch, but obviously this didn't stop him from, like, sneaking up to her room after everyone was asleep. And the thing about Paul was that the... Your typical type of intimacy did not really get his engine going. Um, he needed something out of the ordinary um, in order to, you know, see it to completion with Carla. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
he would often seem bored or distracted unless he was doing something which demeaned her or hurt her or put him in complete control. Um, and this wasn't only true with his relationship with Carla, but like this is how he was in all of his attacks with the other women and girls as well. And one night, Carla saw her lovely Ken Dream doll go outside and watch her sister, Tammy, through her bedroom window. Um, now, for some reason, I guess this wasn't a red flag for Carla. You know, she wasn't like, WTF, what are you doing staring at my little sister changing? Um, she had recently confessed to Paul that she hadn't been a virgin when they met, and that, like, deeply upset him, I guess. Um, so she thought, like, this was just him lashing out and, like, that, oh, well, I guess I could let him do this because, you know, I couldn't give him my virginity or whatever the hell she was thinking. Either way. I can't way, give him mine, so I'll give him my sister's. Yeah, either way, like, there's no excuse that works for me with that. <laughs> no. Um, now it's not clear really when Paul confessed to Carla that he stalked and attacked girls during his downtime. Carla claims that it was on their wedding night, but that's for sure a big fat lie. Uh, so it's not really clear when he did tell her, but she certainly knew, you know, even before he told her that he was this like sexual deviant and possibly dangerous just based off of how he treated her when they were together intimately. Um, after six weeks of dating, um, he kind of went back at it. Scarborough rapist striked again and again and again. That year, he spent Christmas with Carla and he gifted her a $300 gold necklace and a teddy bear that she named Bunky. Um, she gave him a coupon that said, Upon presentation of this coupon, Carla Leanne Homoka will perform sick, perverted acts upon Paul Kenneth Bernardo. These acts may be chosen by the recipient of the coupon. And I'm sure Paul loved that gift, I can only imagine. Paul's fifth victim at this point was 19-year-old college student. Um, and on April 18th, 1988, she tried to escape, but he punched her several times and he dragged her between two houses, proceeding to assault her for roughly 30 minutes. Um, and like we said last week, some of his previous assaults, like, had even lasted up to an hour or longer. Um, it seemed like he was attacking in twos and, like, the intensity of each attack was just getting more and more increasingly worse. Um, probably because the partner in crime that he had, Carlo, was so supportive of what he was doing. It seemed like as soon as Paul started dating Carla, his attacks just got worse as far as the violence was concerned. Um, the task force put together a stakeout, um, and on May 25th, they focused on the areas around the bus stations, and they ended up chasing a suspect. The suspect's description hanging out under a tree, but they lost him after the attack stopped in the Scarborough area, um, and Paul realized that this was around him, um, but because that was him they had like tracked him there and chased after him so instead of you know stopping his horrible behavior he just kind of moved his hunting grounds to a different area um, and he didn't even take a second to pause you know to let things cool down 
um, which kind of just shows you that even though he was having to, you know, adapt to the fact that the police were around him, it didn't even, like, shake him that he was being chased and almost got caught. Like, he didn't even care at all. He attacked another woman, an 18-year-old girl, just four days later on May 30th, but this time the attack happened in Mississauga, 10 miles away from Scarborough, and since the area of the attack was different, the task force wasn't even notified and no one really put two and two together, which is just so freaking crazy to me. According to later attorney general report, when Paul switched his location, he might as well have been operating in another country. The report also says there was no system in place to recognize that serial predators are mobile and different. Jurisdictions did not communicate with each other. Which is just so freaking ass backwards. Like, come on, dummies. Are you kidding? Like, you're not going to put two and two together. Like, the areas aren't that insanely far apart. And the same types of things are going on. Like, clearly, you need to communicate. Well, once you say, oh, they can handle it. They're like, oh, let them handle it. Meanwhile, nobody's handling it. Right, exactly. Lazy bums. When the attacks in Scarborough had stopped, the investigation was put on the back burner in favor of more current crimes that were pressing and all that. Um, So it's worth noting also that Paul's name was on the task force suspect list as early as January of 1988. Um, And if you remember from last week, we talked a little bit about Jennifer, the girl that he dated for three years. Well, she had reached out to a friend of hers who also happened to be a police officer in Toronto, and she was kind of seeking advice on how to get out of a relationship and get money owed to her by the one and only Mr. Paul Bernardo. The police officer spoke with her kind of like in an informal way, just because they were friends um, and they were just hanging out and talking. Um, During this conversation, he began to suspect that the man that she was talking about Uh, Paul might be the Scarborough rapist she kind of talked about you know the incident of him wanting to have sex Um, she really didn't want to he held a knife to her throat and all of that um, and how she escaped and everything Um, and she kind of was just explaining the situation of how Paul was and how he was aggressive and how he was demeaning and how how he was you know sexually and all that so her cop friend wrote up a report because he was like, okay, I feel like this dude is the Scarborough rapist. Um, Smart man. But unfortunately, this report was handwritten, like most of the reports in 1988, and it was lost in a stack of other papers that were related to the case, and it just got lost in the shuffle, which is just so unorganized. You're like, this is just so wild to me that they just are losing reports on like a serial rapist. So at this point, Paul and Carla's relationship quickly spiraled. He became really controlling. He told her what to wear, how to do her hair, what she could say, what she could do. He called her demeaning names, demeaning names, and forced her to call herself these names while in bed with him. Um, And the woman that he attacked also reported the same behaviors. Her friends found handcuffs in her bedroom and she laughed telling them that oh you know Paul just likes to play rough um these were actually real handcuffs ones that 
a police officer would use. In March of 1988, Carla's friend Lisa found a written list in Carla's room. And on this list, Carla kind of wrote out about, you know, eating healthy, exercising, taking care of herself. But she also wrote, never let anyone know our relationship is anything but perfect. Don't talk back to Paul. If Paul asks for a drink, bring him one quickly and happily. Remember you're stupid. Remember you're ugly. Remember you're fat. I don't know why I tell you these things because you'll never change. Which I'm like, oh, that's, that's dark. Um, and it's, it is sad, but don't feel bad for Carla, people, because don't worry, that, sh that feeling uh, definitely will be gone in a minute. <laughs> She'll bounce back. Yeah, she will bounce back. Um, she, you know, she didn't do everything that he wanted. Carla had a strong personality. So I think maybe that's what she meant by you'll never change. Like, she just naturally had a strong personality. And he wanted her to be very um, submissive in, in every way possible. Um, so, yeah. In December of that year, Paul told Carla that since she wasn't a virgin, when they'd met, she owed him something essentially that would be the type of sex that he wanted, which we previously talked about in the last episode. Um, yes, that is right, folks. I am speaking of anal. Um, <laughs> I hate to say it. You hate to hear it, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, she refused to do this. You know, she didn't want to do it. She didn't like it. Um, and he was mad at her for two whole months. Um, he also demanded that she come up with a nickname for his um, for his wee wee. And somehow the name she came up with for it was Snuffles. Again, another thing that I hate to say. Snuffles? Snuffles. I just messed stuff up, I guess. Oh, God. Sorry if I just ruined it for all you Sesame Street lovers. You ruined it. You ruined it. Well, maybe because, like, his thing is, like, this. I, I could see. I could see where that would come from. Um, but now that will forever be ingrained in my memory. Um, she wrote him a note during this time that he was the best. He was a dream come true. And she called him her big bad businessman. She said in this letter, quote, I've been fantasizing what playful things to do with your body all day, your strong chest, your muscular arms, your beautifully shaped legs, your hard, flat stomach, and snuffles. Oh, wonderful snuffles. Oh, snuffle up, I guess. <laughs> These, there's like more, unfortunately, and it goes on even further, but I am not going to make you even more uncomfortable with all the details that were in this letter. I'm sure you can just use your imagination. Or if you really want to know, just Google it. Um, I, I genuinely think that Carla was like a willing participant in everything that she and Paul did together. Later, she would tell a psychiatrist that Paul had treated her like a princess in the early days of their relationship and, like, swept her off her feet. She said he was the guy who was always very nice and he never bored me like the other guys. Um, I could always do what I wanted and in all my previous relationships, I was in total control. I never cared what others thought being the dominant person in her romantic relationships, um, even with her friends and her relationships with her parents. You know, she would even just tell her father to shut up or call him a stupid immigrant. Um, it, 
which is just like wild that she would say that to him. Um, and it was basically boring for her to be in charge and bossing everyone around. So she kind of liked the challenge that Paul gave her to, you know, convince her to go that extra mile with him. Um, a mile that she did not want to go. Again, I'm talking about you know what. And Paul threatened to leave her if she didn't do it. So in February, he brought her to his parents' house while they were away on vacation. And yet another surprise waiting for her was a camera set up and ready to be used on a tripod. He instructed her on what she should do while he snapped pictures. Um, some of these pictures included Paul with an 8-inch hunting knife and a cord to wrap around her neck. He called these props and he told her they excited him, so she just went along with it for Paul. Um, for Snuffles, it turned out she quite enjoyed this and she started bringing up marriage to Paul. So this, you know, this sounds horrifying, but she loved it, so... According to Carla, they'd been together a full year and Paul never laid a hand on her until he asked her to wear a dog collar and she left him. Um, an understandable response, like a laugh, basically being like, you're joking, right? And he answered with a slap across the face and she ended up putting on the dog collar and Paul held the attached leash while he called her his little mutt. Even after all this, she wrote him a letter on their first anniversary, thanking him for the best year of her life. And then she says, this is your little girl who wants to be abused. She needs her big bad businessman to dominate her the best he can. Ew, I'm uncomfy. <laughs> I'm uncomfy. I don't know about you, but I hate this. Um, and you know... Like Lo talked about last week, the model that Paul had for marriage was very unhealthy with his parents. Again, go listen to that episode because their relationship was garbage. Um, and while Carla was finishing up high school, Paul just kept on with his rapes. Um, he had more attacks. And in the spring of 1989, Carla graduated from high school and planned to attend the University of Toronto to study criminology. However, Paul told her that if she was planning to be his wife, she couldn't be going into a job as dangerous as a police officer. So instead, she just started working as a vet assistant in a clinic in St. Catharines. Um, they'd originally been planning to live in Toronto together, but Paul had already, uh, you know, stepped his ground there with his crimes and he was miserable in his white collar job and he was thinking of quitting to become a full-time outlaw to continue illegally bringing things over the border from the u.s to canada so on december 24th 1989 paul and carla got engaged at niagara falls so we're gonna stop here for today kind of just gives you a background on carla and then Carla and Paul's relationship, um, the beginning stages of it and how it, you know, s started out pretty, you know, I feel like it's just been rocky the whole time. Not maybe in their opinion, but to me at least. <laughs> um, a couple things. One, I just want to say 
I've learned so much because watching the Ken and Barbie, like, uh, the videos, Mm -hmm. um, I saw this on Very Scary People, hosted by Donnie Wahlberg. She's doing heartbeats. She's doing heartbeats, guys. Her face. She loves him. Um, So he's the host of that show, and they talked about this, and they focused more on him being scary, and I always was under the impression that she was, like, just a normal 80s bop pop you know popular girl and he um like corrupted ruined her. her to be that way and corrupted her no no she was she was already twisted before he came in to so i just want to be like that's a lot of surprising things um so already kind of like mind blown when Back when you're talking about the hamster. Um, yeah. Tw- taking a parachute. Twisted right. indeed she was. Um, and then the sleepover. I'm sorry, but 17, she's still kind of a baby. 24, he's a man. Like, And she's in high school still. Like, It's not like she graduated. She was still in high school. Yeah, I'm like, you ain't staying the night, dude. Like, It's not like, you know appropriate at all like no not at all her parents definitely um i feel like they just they just gave no f's i feel like there was no uh no rules set in place at all and they didn't care to have any so yeah that's kind of some of my little things um i did have a few things um my brain was going off as so i was taking little notes um you talked about, she called them snuffles, and then I went in the snuffle up, I guess. Oh, God. <laughs> I learned the other day on the Dax Shepard show, um, they had um, somebody on there, and they were talking about different animals, and they said, and I just looked it up because I wanted to make sure I heard it correctly, because I've been sharing this fun fact with everybody, because I'm just so astounded <laughs> that a giraffe, its penis is 77 um, inches, or 77 um, cm, so centimeters, centimeters um, flaccid. <laughs> so, could Damn. you, so when it's, <laughs> when a giraffe is hard, it's almost three feet. It's like two and a half feet long. Oh my god. Ow. <laughs> I mean, I know it's going in other drafts, but that's insane. That's like the size. That's like half of my. That's like half of my height. I know they have a picture of it too. Whoa! That's weird. It doesn't look that big because its body is so huge. But like, I want to see a person standing next to it. Like, not in a gross way, but like. Well, we'll take you to the zoo field trip and see what we can do. <laughs> You may get kicked out the time you're done. Oh, my God. Um, so while you were finishing your story, I was looking at... <laughs> you were looking at draft porn. Uh, <laughs> I actually love that. That's hilarious. Um, and then um, just another little fun story. Again, sorry not to keep saying it, but I was listening to Dax again because mm-hmm. I'm sorry when we're not listening to us and true crime, I listen to Armchair. And uh, there's a guy on there that frequents the show, 
and he always does conspiracies and all this stuff. And he's on there so much that I feel like I know him, even though I don't. But uh, he was talking about how not long ago, um, they did a conspiracy on um, water. And basically, you'd have to go back and listen to it, but I just wanted to say by the end of it, it talked about how he ended up getting, not knowing because he's from New Zealand, he got a room and stayed and drank the water, thought it tasted kind of off, but, you know, U.S., New Zealand, difference, whatever. But, no, no, he was staying at the Cecil Hotel, like, right in the beginning of the drowning of the little girl. That, I would say little girl, but she was 21. But. That is so nasty. Like, I can't even imagine finding that out. Like, that you drank the water and then you found out that a decomposing body was, like, being filtered in that water like I I wouldn't I couldn't go on I couldn't go on I would never drink water out of a sink ever again no matter where I was I would always drink bottled water so I'm shocked that he's pro tap water and Crystal did confess to me in uh the car drive confessions today that she does not drink hotel faucet water I never do like Um. Even so if I'm dying of thirst, I really, I just don't. I don't even love brushing my teeth there. I think because I'm scarred from that, uh, from that story. So, um, yeah, that was just kind of, I was kind of like, <gasps> like jaw dropped when I heard him talking about it today. I'm like, oh no. Like even Monica was just like, no way, you didn't, you didn't, no. Oh my God. So, yeah, uh, the good old Cecil Hotel. That's insane. So crazy. Well, guys, thank you for listening to part two of our Ken and Barbie um, Killers episodes. Come back for next week. It will be the third and final part, and we're really going to get into the dark, nitty-gritty shit that went on because it gets horrifying. Yeah, this is just like the little flashes of lightning before the very dark thunderstorm. Yeah, so if you want to hear the darkest of darkest um things but is it dark it's it's pretty it's pretty dark like pitch black so if you want to hear the pitch black details come back next week and then i thought of an idea and i wrote it down um i think it's time for us to do another giveaway yes true um i am gonna run it by my kk okay and if she likes it we're going to announce what our next one will Will be. be nice i'm excited you guys better get excited. Yeah, unless she doesn't like it, then we're starting the episode off next week going, wah, wah, wah. Yeah, then you'll know. I, then I'll, I'm the one who ruined it. Kay said hell to the nah. <laughs> I, I probably won't veto it. Your ideas are good. I, I can never veto them. I mean... No, they are. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for tuning in the... Part two, um, new listeners, old listeners, young listeners, old listeners, <laughs> all the listeners. Every listener that could exist. <laughs> we appreciate you. We love you all. Yes, thank you. And uh, until next time, stay creepy. We got to go. Bye. Bye-bye.